Alright, welcome to, to Film Shots. This is Joel Marshall. Let's start that again. You want to start it again? Wait, wait, wait. Okay. Stop directing. Okay. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Film Shots. This is Joel Marshall and I am lucky enough to be here in the studio of Henry Jaglum and he is on Sunset Boulevard and I'm sitting here at his editing bay. I didn't expect to be sitting here watching him edit his next film and that is one of the things that makes Henry unique I think and also this is a film uh, this is a podcast about filmmaking and independent filmmakers and I think being here with him is like a he's like a living master class in independent filmmaking and I'm also here I'm fortunate enough to be here with Tana Frederick who is the star of his next film and what is the name of the film Hollywood Dreams Hollywood Dreams all right so Thank you for inviting me here. And she is the star of the film which we are now preparing. Hollywood Dreams is, has already been shot, and we're now editing it. I am now editing it. And we are preparing the, a film called Irene in Time, which we're shooting this spring. Wow. There's a lot going on here. A lot going mm -hmm. on with Tana Frederick. That's for sure. We're busy. We're busy. And also, <laughs> you're opening Going Shopping. Going Shopping is opening across the country, uh, Chicago Friday, and uh, throughout the Midwest and South. Uh, for, yeah, it, it already did Los Angeles and New mm -hmm. York, where it played for right. money. It's still playing in Los Angeles. Absolutely. It's playing down the street. It is not playing down the oh, street Oh, it's not anymore. there anymore. No, it's, now it's in Santa Monica. Well, it was down there for a down good long time. It was, yep, yep. Which is a, it's a great film. I was lucky enough to see that, and many of Henry's films. Uh, I'd say my first experience with Henry's films is uh, I saw this movie called Always when I was uh, young. I went with my parents. And I tell you, my parents are avid moviegoers and always have been. And we went to see that movie, and I left that movie thinking, this is different. You know, mm -hmm. this is really different. I, I felt like the filmmaker had invited us into his life. Sure, that's the And point. I was I was wondering, I always have yeah. wondered and have read about it since, but what is that style of filmmaking that you do that is so personal uh, that I feel like I'm meeting more than just actors portraying a role? Yeah, or characters in a movie. Orson Welles called it when he watched me working in a film he did called Someone to Love, and he said what I do is, is the cinema of emotional verite. Emotional verite. It's not cinema verite, it's not documentaries, it's fiction. But it's fiction so much based upon emotional reality and truthfulness that it becomes a kind of uh, blend where hopefully the audience cannot sort of draw a clear line between what is really happening and what is like a story on film. So I hope by doing that, by blurring that line, uh, to bring the audience so much more deeply into the emotion of the film that they can really identify with the emotion, not just the characters, but the emotion that I'm trying to explore or the theme like in going shopping about women's obsessions with shopping or back when it was about eating women and food or or just the various relationships to love and longing and yearning which is so much a big part of a lot of my movies like the film you mentioned always which was the end of my first marriage which my ex-wife and I co-starred in together and shot entirely in the house we lived in together was she your ex-wife at that time she was just about to become or even more like Harry wow. because we were on the verge of getting divorced and we both knew it Mm -hmm. And we decided, Orson's, and I was crying and miserable about it because she was leaving me. I didn't want to end the relationship. And we'd been married for six years. And Orson said, look, if you were a songwriter, you'd write a song about this. If you were a poet, you'd write a poem. You're a filmmaker, make a film. I said, how can I make a film? And I was crying my eyes out. And he said, just put it in your house. Bring her over. Bring. She's a great actress. I know she'll do it. She'd starred in a movie for me mm -hmm. called Sitting Ducks. 
And uh, we went through this extraordinary experience, you know. So that's I'm glad that was your first film. What an amazing Something. film for your parents to take you to. Uh, my parents just see everything. How old were you? Um, I don't know offhand. I don't remember. Um, in your early I saw it teens? at the Seven Gables Theater in Seattle, which is oh, yeah, Seven Gables. That's my, really cool for a. That's very. Used to hip. go there a lot. That is, but you've got good parents. Yeah. Oh yeah, my yeah. dad's an artist. And that's uh, why. That's my audience, and yeah. so that's you know that's really nice to know that they would take you because that's an emotionally disturbing film in some ways. And mm -hmm. how old were you? I don't know. I'll have to find okay. out. Okay. <laughs> All right. You were little. I can tell you. What that. was it like working with Henry? Uh, amazing. Yeah. It was an amazing roller coaster. Um, there is so much freedom. I, every single ounce of creative juice from the, la the last five years of my life was just squeezed out. Mm -hmm. And it's just fun because it's the squeezing process. He knows how to just squeeze every bit of, of emotion that you have and, and lets you play. It was more, it reminded me of growing up. It was, it was very much me going down into my basement, putting a whole bunch of dress up clothes on and, and just doing scenes all day. So it's, it's, it's a jungle gym. It's just a, that's the feeling I get when yeah. I watch the actors in these, these films, cause I'm an actor and, um, I think that these actors seem like they're having a good time. Well, I, no, I started no. as an actor. I'm oh, sorry. Go on. What? There's I was no. just going to say there's no there's nobody like Henry. There's nobody that lets you go. You can't do anything wrong and to have that as an actor, to mm -hmm. be able to try every single thing that you've ever dreamed of is so much fun. Was I started as an actor on TV shows like The Flying Nun and Gidget, which oh, I yeah. guest starred on those things and if you said the instead of a the director would say cut and look in the script and say the word is the. Yeah. So I so when I became a director, I and I, I I a product of the actor's studio and of telling a certain kind of emotional truth, all I knew was I, I just did not want to limit my actors in any way. I wanted to try to dig into them as much as possible and have them use it's just selfish and smart as a director to not just limit them and try to squeeze them into a narrow part, but to try to tap into their memories, their language, their history and pull out as many kinds of things as you possibly can and then have them interact with each other, surprise themselves on screen, which surprises then the audience in the most effective way. But I, but I just want to add to just to expose your deep, dark secrets. <laughs> he might be that like that with films, but I actually uh -huh. met him because I, I found a, a play that he had done, workshopped in the actor's studio um, in New York called A Safe Place. Mm. So I did that as a play. I knew nothing about Henry or how his filming was done. Did you work but with he, Kim first? In yes, Kim first directed him. Right. Yeah, yeah, how she funny. Was she, was, she directed it. But yeah, it was great. really, he is such a stickler about A and the. No, that's as a he playwright. There. No, that, as a playwright, yes. As a playwright. Yes. So, so making the movie was a completely different experience. Yeah. It was a, that was a journey for you, too, because you would let yeah, because Tuesday I say well just and yeah Jack when Nicholson we did the, well that's the reason I became the kind of filmmaker I became became and that answers the question that you just really asked when I wrote a safe place first as a play I was a playwright and of course every word was written then I adapted it for the screen and for Columbia Pictures because I had been successfully working on the editing of Easy Rider and everybody mm -hmm. who got it, who was involved in that film got a chance to direct their own movie. So the producer, Bert Schneider, said to me, what do you want to do? And I said, I, have, I want to do a film version of, of A Safe Place. So I wrote it, and I wrote it like you're supposed to write it, as a full-out film. Mm -hmm. And now I shoot the first time, day I'm shooting, I've got Tuesday Weld and Jack Nicholson, both of whom are tremendously good actors, both of whom are very good friends of mine, so I know them intimately well. And I've written a really great scene for them, because I'm a, I'm a very good writer. Mm -hmm. So they do the scene, and it's okay, but it's not as good somehow. I don't know. I say, well, t what are you supposed to say? Take two. Take two. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. We do it three or four times, 
And I realized something's missing. What's missing is the magic that is Jack Nicholson, the magic that is Tuesday Weld. Mm -hmm. So I said to them, look, you know what's supposed to happen in this scene. Forget what I wrote. Just do it. Do it the way you feel. Just like, accomplish what I need for the story and then go on in your own language. And it was magic. Mm -hmm. And I didn't look at the script for the rest of shooting my movie. It drove the crew and everybody else crazy. But I didn't, and since then I've been writing structures uh -huh. and hints at dialogue, and sometimes when I need to for the story, uh, certain detail, but mostly I'm encouraging the actors to create the movie with me. Mm -hmm. Then I come back here to this machine, you see here my editing table, and uh, I refuse to get into the modern thing of computers because of that, because I need to fill the film. Yeah. And I, I really create the film out of what the, what the actors gave me. I write the film after I've shot it here on my editing room. And so anything that doesn't work where an actor takes a big chance and a leap and falls on her face, mm -hmm. because it's not, I just don't need it. I don't have to, I find another way of cutting the movie together. And if anybody can't, they, or they can't obviously see the editing machine, but it's really cool to look at. It looks like something from Lost in Space. It does. It really does. Now, this is it's a, huge. Only it's the size of a brontosaurus. <laughs> this is the way films were cut. Yeah. Not until the, the recently. Only, uh, well, wait a second. This is, this huge machine here uh -huh. is actually modern, except to you oh kids. Oh, my God. Because, I'll tell you why, because when I started in 1970, uh-huh. Nobody had this. They, they were editing on what was called a moviola, where they manipulated it with their foot and, and throwing the film through. Mm -hmm. And Orson Welles, again, who was in my first movie, also right. with Jack and Tuesday, said to me, you want to cut on this new thing called a chem. You want to cut on it because you won't need an editor. Editors don't want to use it because they, they'll be put out of business because it's so easy to use. So I, they, they, Columbia got me this machine. And I, I edited my first film, and now 15 films later, I'm still editing on it, and I don't want to know I'm suddenly reactionary. Before, I was very progressive and way ahead of myself, yeah. editing on the same machine that now looks like, what did you call it, a brontosaurus? It's a But it is more, I have to admit, we, we shot a little part of it, uh, Hollywood Dreams, digitally. Mm -hmm. And watching, we actually had to bring an editor in for that. Mm -hmm. And w the feel of doing it digitally versus having sat here and watched him work on this lost in space on 35 equipment is so much more romantic yeah i mean i i definitely think if i ever did any digital editing it would it would it loses something i was looking at it and watching some of the scenes and i, I tell you it is captivating isn't it yes it two really screens. is two screens. now tell me yeah. is it the actual film that you're editing or <laughs> there it is that's the sound. This is the sound. This is the picture. It's the actual film, except it's, of course, not the negative. It's not the negative. No, 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 no. no you no. wouldn't do that. No, I wouldn't do that. Those boxes over there uh -huh. are the film. The film is in those boxes. Okay. I take the boxes from the scenes. I, I, I cut them here. I mm -hmm. hang the pieces up here that I take out of my scenes, which are enormous. There's a bin They're, here with big all bins kinds with of... bits and pieces. They're over there also. There's, there's feet, two feet long three inches long, one f like four frames, and there are things that are huge and long. And then an, my assistant editor comes in in the morning, because mm -hmm. I like to sleep late, and she puts it all together by the numbers that are coded on it back into those boxes. And that's the way everybody made films until three years or four years ago. Right. And that is the way I think nobody makes films anymore. And this is 35 millimeter, which is the same thing that you see in the movie theater, that is used yeah. in the movie theaters, which probably will be eliminated. Someday, I mean, you so. certainly have a hands-on 
attitude about this, and you have the actress here in the room. Yes, working with me. That's <laughs> right. Working with you, which See, is I'm really no, I'm great no fool. too. Yeah, <laughs> saying to me, oh, "What piece?" Because she knows the movie intimately because she made it with me. So it's like having a second me here. Yeah, and yeah. that I can, you know, and it's twice the brain power, twice the creativity. Do you often have actors in the in the no. room? No, this no. is a very special situation because she's not only the actress but very much a collaborator mm -hmm. and megalomaniacal. And she's a, a so she's, she's a both, megalomaniac. We both like love, Plus love watching our, our art. <laughs> Plus, this movie right. Hollywood Dreams is all about an actor's obsession with fame and becoming famous and so mm -hmm. on. So it's a very good thing to have her be working on it because she's able to give me an overview of a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it what it's going to be like for the next movie, having watched myself so much on film, but it won't affect you at all. Surely McLean did a, it. That's right. You're Lots watching. And you're playing it. a completely different part, so it doesn't have any effect. Now this office is utilized for a lot of different purposes, I think. I, now I'm wondering, in Going Shopping, was it actually in the movie, this office? This office was not in the movie in Going Shopping. It's been in several of my movies. I it end has? up, I don't know if you ever saw uh, uh, Venice Venice. Yes. Well, the very end of Venice Venice turns out to be a movie mm -hmm. in which I'm sitting here editing Okay, there the, we whole, have it. the whole movie in Venice with the girl who played the starring role sitting behind me. And so I if you want to see what this looks like, check out Venice Venice. Venice. Check out the very end. Go. But don't, I shouldn't tell the story, but yeah, but don't think about it until uh -huh. the end of the movie because it'll screw up the whole thing. <laughs> and there's another section of the, of the office in there uh -huh. that it was, was also used when I interview people to be my, to be my wife in that film. Mm -hmm. There are bits and pieces of the offices that I've used in, in other things. I can't remember exactly, but I use everything. I use everybody's home, everybody's, everything that I can think of, mm. you know. It helps because it's real places where real people live or real people work and, you know, it, it gives and you a kind of... And plus your whole thing about just preserving all, all of your memories. And I like to preserve my memories. I'm a little obsessive about that. But Always, which your first movie, your first Jaglon mm -hmm. movie, was shot entirely in the house I actually lived in with wow. my, my ex-wife. So what does a and that a, both my children were born in? What does a Jaglum script look like? It can look like many things. The smallest Jaglum script in memory was New Year's Day, which stars Maggie Wheeler and David Duchovny. And um, New Year's Day is actually a shirt cardboard. You know what they what, what you get the cardboard back from the dry oh, cleaner. Oh yeah, right. And it's written on two sides of one. I've got to find that. It's somewhere, <laughs> that, that artifact. And I, all I wrote was scene one, he arrives. Scene two, she answers the door. Scene three, two other girls come into the kitchen. Scene four, the scene with the four of them in the kitchen. Scene five, they go into the living room. He calls for a hotel. Scene six, no hotel. Uh, they say, why don't you stay over? You could get a lot of money for that on eBay. Yeah, that's right. You should find it. <laughs> yeah, put it in a museum. You should see. I'll get you. Give you a copy of the film. But Hollywood it's, it's Dreams. Oh, nice. great! I would love to see that. Pages. It's, it is. Yeah. Which is pretty standard. Script. Oh, now yeah, now I've come to like Hollywood Dreams is a, how many pages? One hundred twenty-four. One hundred twenty-four. But it's not a script in a conventional sense. Mm -hmm. Still, it says scene one, two, three, four, five. It's very fleshed out compared to that. It, see, it says what everybody has to accomplish. But many times in the, in the shooting. We just say, forget about it. Let's go here. And that changes everything. And dialogue is, some, is, is suggested, in some cases is written. And many times it just says she has to get him to take her for a walk. Do you rehearse before Absolutely you shoot? Absolutely not. No. Mm -hmm. I would never rehearse anything in the world. Mm -hmm. that I come, I come from, from a background at the actor's studio where I watched actors being magnificent the first time and then boring and repetitious, trying to get back to it over and over again in rehearsals. 
and nothing is as fresh as the as the first time. You if always you use the first people, take. No, I don't always use the first take, but I usually use the bulk of the scene as the mm -hmm. first take, but frequently the best moments come later when they're changed. Mm -hmm. But it's the surprise that you yourself as an actor fall into that that gets gives me the freshness that you know, people who love my movies and people who hate my movies, and there are quite a few in the second category, they all agree that the actors are really wonderful and they don't understand why are these performances so wonderful. And the simple reason is that I give really good actors a chance to be good and, and fly. And they know if they're going to land on their face, it's not going to end up on, it'll end up on the cutting room floor. So they take big chances and big leaps. And when you see Tana in the next film, you will not believe it because beside the camera loving her, in some way that is nobody can buy. You know, you either have that as Orson always said or not. But beside that, she takes these great chances. And that's, for me, my kind of filmmaking is about really taking chances. Well, and I think that actors need, uh, pardon the pun, safe, a safe place in, in order to, to take, take those chances. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So they need to feel like, you know, I'm going to take this chance and I, you know... Well, it, it's the first time I've ever felt safe filming anything or even acting because, and felt heralded for, for taking chances. I've always been told that I'm too big. I've told, been told that I make big choices, but mm -hmm. they're not necessarily the best choices. But with Henry, I was able to make whatever choice I wanted. And Henry said, great, great, great. Do that. Mm -hmm. Try something different. I can't believe it. You, you, you're getting the first Tanner Frederick interview. This is fantastic. I oh, yeah, that's so true. The first, <laughs> all your other interviews have referred to theater work. This is the yeah. first film interview in what's going to be a spectacular film Isn't career. Isn't that great? I I'm know. really excited suddenly to, wow. yeah. I suddenly realized, <laughs> I realized suddenly the historicity of this moment. You know, as you were talking, I'm thinking, wait a minute, you should save that for when we're on, like on The Tonight Show or something. And no, <laughs> this, is, this is really the way, this is great. We've, we've never done this because no. I mean, this is our first, her first time since this she is a movies. historic moment. It's like moment. your postcard. Save this for future historians. Yeah, when I was four years, uh, six years old, seven years old, I wrote a postcard to my mother mm -hmm. from summer camp. Dear mommy, I'm fine. How are you? Love Henry. P.S. Save this card for future historians. <laughs> so this, There's this, the beginning this of a podcast, great filmmaker. Yeah, but this great. podcast. Yeah. We, we, it's your first. This is memorable. This is history. That's one of the things about this podcast that I want to do is, is create an, an archive, basically, of all these interviews of Hollywood, of people in Hollywood at this time. Why aren't you, know? why aren't you visually interviewing them at the same time? Because I, want, I like podcasts that you can listen to anywhere. Oh. And I also feel like, um, you know, I want people to be as comfortable as possible. Uh -huh. I don't want them worrying about what they look like or whatever. Or like this you know, well, whenever you do a visual, stance, you can do it again. We can do that again, right? Film. I mean, she okay. obviously is great on film, and yeah. people will see her in the yeah. film. Yeah. Uh, but I like the fact that she happened to be here, and we happen yeah, to be able to plan. do this. Yeah. We didn't have to call up, you know, her agent, ask her, you know, can right. we make no, her we up and do this thing? And what is, what's I, her publicist going to say? Blah blah blah. I don't deal with agents or publicists that don't even allow them Excellent. in the office. So it's... Well, one thing I want to commend you on is that you um, are truly a film auteur. You are someone yeah. who who makes films from beginning to end. And when we've been kind of on a hunt for uh, what is an independent film, and we were over at Film Independent, we were asking them, what's an independent film? Even they were hard-pressed to say what that was. Oh, no, it's um, really easy to say what an independent film. It's not what's called an independent film now, because every major company now has an independent so-called division. Right. And when you spend $20 million or $10 million on a movie, it's not, by definition, it can't be an independent film. It can be a good film. It can have an independent spirit. But a really independent film is one which is not about the economics of this business. Mm -hmm. And it's not about finding a genre, like even if it's, for instance, an independent horror film, it's not an independent film unless it's done from, a from my point of view, unless the filmmaker is making it out of a passion. 
-hmm. for filmmaking. Mm -hmm. That's the definition for me of an independent film. You know, John Cassavetes was probably the first independent filmmaker. I saw his film when I was a kid, Shadows, and it changed my life. Uh, but Orson Welles, who tried to work for studios, was also an independent filmmaker because he was working out of his passion. Mm -hmm. You know, there are other people who are making small films that the reason they're making them is because they can't get the money to make bigger films and they want to use them as stepping stones simply, and you can tell from their careers, that after making a small successful film, they go into this Hollywood Seems to be the jungle. And yeah, well, that's because they're scared and wonderful, wonderful people I know have disappeared into the mainstream, not disappeared because they're very famous, a lot of them, and are very rich, but they've lost that goal, that excitement that started them off, that what we all began not to make a fortune, not to become famous, but we all began to make films. We wanted to really make films. You know, my heroes were, were the people in Europe who were doing it, John Schlesinger in England and, and Truffaut in France and, and Ingmar Bergman and Fellini. And these people were making films. Sometimes they got studio backing, sometimes they just did it with $20. But they were making films for themselves, really for themselves. And uh, what's great about today for independent filmmakers, it's the best time for independent filmmakers because all this technology exists. Mm -hmm. So you do not need all the economics that you used to need when you start, started out, when I started out certainly making movies. You can, you can do it, you can make for no money on your own little uh, DVD player or video thing mm -hmm. a movie and get it seen somehow. And you can, you can it's, and there's technology now to relay it to other people, to an audience. There's increasing ways like this to find audiences. Do you think Good Night and Good Luck then is an independent film? Good Night and Good Luck is definitely an independent film. So is Capote. Mm -hmm. Even though they could be made, I mean, Capote's Sony Classics, for instance, and that's a division of Sony. So it wasn't a question of money, though it's limited, but it was a, a real search for, for you know, a vision, to be mm -hmm. express a vision. That's what's exciting now about the Academy Awards, that it's changing so much that two of films like Good Night and Good Luck, uh, even Brokeback Mountain, which is a big mainstream commercial film. And Transamerica. And Transamerica. A lot of these films could never have been done before because there's an independent spirit behind them. So I don't think it's about economics at all. It's about the spirit, the freedom of the person to really make the film the way they want to make the film. I mean, I've been offered a lot of money by studios to make films, and then I say, do I have final cut? And they say, well, no, of course not. Because, you know, we don't know what you're going to come up with. And I say, well, that's it. I, I need final cut. I don't need all your money. Give me one tenth, one twentieth, one fiftieth of that money, you know. So I, I make films basically for what other films spend on lunches, you mm -hmm. know. But uh, but I get to make them the way I want. You love my films or you hate my films, frame for frame, they're my films, and nobody can change. Nobody's looking over my shoulder telling me what to do. That's an independent film. I think so too. I think that's a really good answer. Um, it's a long one. Too. Is it long? Fine. <laughs> is it uh, difficult to distribute your films? Um, we have, well, this is another way I became an independent filmmaker. I realized, oh my God, <laughs> my second film, my first film was Columbia Pictures. I made a poetic, dreamlike film, A Safe Place, with the one with Tuesday Jack and Orson, mm -hmm. that nobody wanted to see. Uh, thank God, Anais Nin saw it and, and gave me an audience of uh, conscious women, and it started playing, but it, it never ma could make money. And nobody would make it. For five years, I couldn't get money for my second Anais film. Anais Nin saw your movie. Oh, yes. She saw my movie and wrote in a... Anais Nin saw my movie and saved it from oblivion. She took it under her arm to college campuses. She wrote a piece called In Favor of the Sensitive Man. Mm -hmm. It's published in, in that collection. She, she sent it out to all these counterculture, village voice in New York and a thing out here, like LA Weekly is now, whatever the counterpart was. 
And she took it under her arm, a 16 millimeter print, to college campuses, to women's groups around the country, showing it as an example of what, what could be done in the internal landscape of filmmaking. But on the outside, nobody would, it was a disaster f to the normal audience. Mm -hmm. uh, Time magazine said it looked like I threw the pieces up in the air and they landed in the Mixmaster arbitrarily. Oh, no. And nobody in this town would give me a job. Until I found Zach Norman, who's my actor in a lot of my movies. That guy's who, great. Who put I really together? Like that he, well, actor. he put together the financing for really? my next for tracks. He put together with by selling to doctors and dentists little units of fifteen thousand here and ten thousand. He gave me got me the money for it. He plays and, a gay film producer but, in the next film. Does he? He's but great. then I couldn't find a distributor. Mm -hmm. You asked about distribution yes, because right. there was then seven studios and there were no independent distributors. There was no Miramax. There was no fine line. There was no such thing. Mm -hmm. There were no classic divisions. So, so where did you go? Nowhere. I showed it to each one of the seven studios mm -hmm. called Tracks. It was a movie about the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. While the war was just coming down, but it was still nobody wanted to see anything about the Vietnam War. The only thing they wanted less was a film starring Dennis Hopper, which is what this film, who this film starred. It was never distributed. It's the only one of my films that have never been distributed. So when Sitting Ducks was successful, the next film, commercially, and started you know, making... A, Quite a, quite a successful uh, amount of money for an independent film, I put together my own distribution company. And now we, I have Sharon Lester in the other room and calling up theaters around the country. Making, and you book booking, them? And I book them. And sometimes if a uh. film looks like it could go in other directions, always, the film you saw, I sold to the Samuel Goldwyn Company for three times what it cost me. Uh, my father was very happy about that. Uh, last film, a festival in Cannes, Paramount Classics picked up because now there are alternate routes. But, you know, going shopping is being distributed by us. Eating was distributed by us. So you know all your venues and book your venues? I know all the venues. I know which, which art theaters like to play my films. Sometimes, like in going shopping, some of the, some, it goes beyond art theaters because it's got a subject that a lot of women respond to. So it's playing at, at some malls here and there and Lowe's theaters where my mm -hmm. films don't usually play. But uh, we find out each film. We, I don't leave it to anybody else to put myself in a position where, you know, even if I make a deal with a distributor, another distributor, if they can't open it and just close it, if it doesn't work, there's always this cushion to give a chance to build word of mouth because my films need that. There's a special audience and there's a, you know, it's an intelligent, I always say I'm looking for 5% of the audience in America. I don't want, I mean, 5% is pretty, more than anybody big needs. Big amount, yeah. Yeah, and, and by freeing yourself of trying to appeal to the 95% who want action, adventure, distractions, mindless entertainment of some sort, and that's fine. I, by, by freeing myself from that, I'm able to really make the films that I want. Brilliant. <laughs> I don't know about brilliant, but, <laughs> no, but it's, I'll correct. tell you what it is. It's I enormously it's satisfying, uh -huh. and I'm the only person I know in this town totally free this way. I feel really proud of that. All my friends who got caught up in the studio system, they all started like me wanting to be a real filmmaker and they're all complaining about all the reasons that they can't do what they want to do, that they're forced to do this subject, they're forced to take that actor, they're forced to cut out that scene or change the ending or, you know. That's why it's so exciting when somebody does come along, like, uh, like what's his name on, on Good Night and Good Luck? Um, George Clooney. George Clooney. Mm -hmm. And uses his fame to make a real piece of work, a serious piece of I art. I think that's probably most people's ideal, is that they'll take the money now. Yeah, but and very few do it. Clooney is one of the few who right. does it. Hoffman, Seymour, Philip Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip mm -hmm. Seymour Hoffman choosing to use his fame as an actor on Capote, which makes that film possible, is another. Mm -hmm. Act. Those are people who are dedicated to doing what they really started out to do. Very, very, very few such people exist, unfortunately. Jonathan Axelrod was saying to you the other day that 
everybody, somebody that he grew up in the business with and that everybody set out to do what Henry's doing, but nobody stuck with it except for him and how he admired that. Well, you know, it's just a stubborn sort of resistance to being told what to do. I think I'm just too recalcitrant and difficult. But uh, <laughs> the people are doing it more now. That's why it's very nice to see the Philip Seymour Hoffmans mm -hmm. and the uh, George Clooney's and those people use their positions to get films made that really are interesting, serious looks at things. Yeah. That's great. Do you, when you go to cast a film, mm. how do you go about doing that? Well, like this, you came in here and I'm looking at you and while we're doing this entire interview, I'm watching you and interviewing you as much as you're interviewing me, even if you're not aware of it. And I'm thinking, oh, we've got this film and this next film's called Irene and Time and we've got these relations. I'm trying to think how you can work. And you so heard I, that I, right here on Film Shots. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And, 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 and that's really how I do it. I don't, I don't uh -huh. ever give somebody a part and say, read this for me. You because don't. No, because I don't want to squeeze you into a predetermined part. I look at you and I think, what's interesting about this person? What is the quality here? How can I use that quality in this movie? Mm -hmm. How does that help express what the theme of this... For instance, the coming movie is about fa uh, fathers and daughters, the relationship between girls and their fathers and how that affects their lifelong relationship to men. Mm -hmm. So Tanner Frederick, who is playing Irene, the central character, is trying to find out how to have a relationship with a guy and they never seem to succeed because she's overwhelmed by the image of a father who was certain things in her life and who died in her, when she was still a young girl. So so, that I'm, so I'm looking at you and thinking, oh, yes, it's an interesting quality. This is a, you know, you're very clear, you're very, and I start thinking, how do I fit that in rather than trying to say, oh, there was the part of George, which is like, you know, two scenes. Mm -hmm. you could, let's try you out for George. I don't have a part of George. Rather than trying to shoehorn this yeah. individual mm -hmm. into that's a right. character. That's, that's right. It's yeah. just the opposite. So people like Lee Grant came to me um, uh, when I asked for somebody to play the mother in, in going shopping. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, this is just two or three scenes. Is that okay? And she's a great actress with a great reputation and family. And she said, okay, I'll, sure, she's my friend. I'll do it. She'd stopped acting because she was mostly directing, but... Well, she ended up with a huge part yeah. because she was so good at it and she kept coming up with inventive things that I shifted the whole script to support that. I'm no fool. If the actor's really giving me great stuff, I'm not going to say, excuse me, I only want you for that one scene. I'm going to mm -hmm. reshape my movie rather than squeeze the actors. What about the interviews that you do, like in Going Shopping and Baby Fever? And in some movies, that, when a movie is a theme movie, a theme-linked uh -huh. movie, like, baby, like Someone to Love for, about the search for love, being alone, or someone to love now that was really something yeah I, I'm still wondering what exactly went down with the filming of that I'm, yeah I'll ask you about that but okay <laughs> you're, not, you're not alone some critics like said he even shows his meaner side when he does it's this thing and scares this girl and I didn't we don't the actors all know what's going on but yeah. the audience doesn't which is very good uh -huh. uh, my point is when it's a thematically linked movie like eating all about women and food or, or, or baby fever or going shopping about women and, the, and the, then I'd like to counterpoint the narrative story with a lot of interviews of different women if it's if it's about that uh, on the subject of the film because then I feel the canvas becomes much larger and instead of just telling what you can normally tell in a movie two stories or three stories you can have this resonance of all the different things we're not doing it in the next two movies because mm -hmm. they don't they're not about that do the actors generally generally like to do that love it love I would it. think so yeah mm -hmm. they love it and they're and brave actors you know they're it's all about bravery really opening up truthfully because I don't have actors I don't tell them what to say in those interviews mm -hmm. so they very much reach into their own 
and their own feelings and their own memories. And I cast actors who have issues with the subject of the film. How about, you know the movie Deja Vu, where they're yeah. sitting around and Vanessa Redgrave tells a story, right. and they're each telling stories. Are those their stories, or were they written? Vanessa Redgrave's story is from her childhood. When, mm-hmm. I, when we talked about doing the movie, she told me that story, and I said, oh my God, this fits perfectly. It was a real st- about her being in the hospital when she mm-hmm. was young and so on. That's so, a real story. That's a real story. But for instance, the other actress who I gave a story to is a story that I had read that Catherine Hepburn talked about, about having seen oh, yeah, it. Oh, yeah, she said in that. In the pulling away. So I had her say, tell a story about like, Catherine Hepburn. they're like, that's not Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn, that's you. That's what they say at the end of it. She didn't tell that story. That's, that's right. Her that's story what they probably. say. That's <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And that suited the characters, too. But, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not stupid. And if I have, if I have, um, if I have an actress like Vanessa Redgrave, I am going to tap into her rather than try to squeeze her into me. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much going on in that brilliant woman yeah. that all I want to do is like squeeze it out gently and find different ways of it coming out. You know. I think as a filmmaker, what what your technique is, what most reminds me of it is that game that you play as an actor where you never tell anybody no. You're not allowed to say no, so you just mm-hmm. throw things back and forth. It's mm-hmm. a, some improv game. Yeah. Because as a filmmaker, Henry never says no. I've never seen that as a part of his vocabulary or even his his method of filming. So it's just, it's always know. yes, 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 yes. I and can then, never know what's going to come up. And and why would I say no? And that's like stopping the impulse and stopping the creativity. And if people have impulses, please try it. Give it to me. It's gifts. It's just being greedy, you know. Really you say it's being greedy, but it feels very giving. Being greedy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's probably pretty pretty giving. Um, no, I don't want to make this too generous. It's really selfish because it's it's giving in the sense because I'm an actor and I know how good it feels for other actors. But what it really is is smart because I know that that will free the actor to reveal parts of themselves that they might not otherwise come up with. And then I'm going to be sitting here at this machine saying thank you to the actors, which I'm doing all the time. Mm-hmm because they've just taken a chance, because they've given, been given the freedom. All actors ever want is to not be like told no and let them try to use all that, their instrument and all the stuff that they have inside of them. How do you feel about um, test audiences? I don't, te- I don't use test audiences in the conventional sense because I don't, how am I going to know who they are pushing those buttons? What I do mm-hmm. is I have rough cut screenings, sometimes 20, 30, 40, 50, sometimes more. During the process of editing the film, we're going to start having them on this in about a month. I'll invite you to one Great. of them, and you'll see what happens. What I just say to people, okay, after, stay with me after seeing the screening. I see how the movie plays, first of all. And then I say, stay with me for an hour, and let's talk. Uh, what, what, what didn't work? What was confusing? Or, did, or if I have the intention of, in that scene, I want them to know that somebody is such and such. Did you get that? Mm-hmm. Or was that conflict? And what stood in the way? And I... I, I ignore the things that people don't like that I don't care about, but the things that they are pinpointing that are not getting them the, the information I want them to get, I go back and I hone it. You know, Orson Welles said the best, gave me the best description still of any, anybody about the way I make movies. He said to me while we were shooting Someone to Love one day, he said to me, you know, Henry, you're like this old Eskimo. I said, what? He said, you're like this old Eskimo I saw in a, in a documentary about Eskimos who is sitting with a gigantic walrus tusk and carving away at the walrus tusk. And the filmmaker goes up to the Eskimo and says, what is it that you're making? And the Eskimo looks totally bewildered by the question and looks up at the filmmaker and says, I I don't know, I'm trying to find out what's inside. And that's really me. I'm I'm carving away, as Orson said. He says, you're carving away at yourself, because I was in that movie. 
at me, <laughs> you know, at your friends, at your generation, at all kinds of people, at the, our whole culture, trying to find out what's inside of all of us. That's really what I think the job is. For me, that's what I like to do. It seems that um, your films are always investigating something. You seem to be investigating I, something. Uh, well, I want to find out stuff. I also, there's a, another goal, a real mm -hmm. other goal, and that is to make people feel less alone to make people feel less like they're the only ones experiencing whatever, all this tough stuff that we all experience in life. When you go to Hollywood movies, what I feel is you always are put into a fake world somehow where you know that's not real and it can be beautiful, it can be great, but you're saying that's a great performance or it's a beautiful script, what good dialogue or what a beautiful shot, and you're outside of it. And what I want to do is just like make people feel they're, it's okay to be going through. There are many other people we're all going through. There, were, there was, a, there was a, an album in the 1970s called We're All Bozos on This Bus, Firesign Theater. We're all bozos on this bus. And that's my, I mean, that's the theme of all my movies. I just know that people hiding are being in closets and refusing to acknowledge things or being scared to acknowledge things make them feel isolated, scared, confused, hurt. And that just coming out of every closet, whatever that closet is, and just saying, it's okay to be who I am and feel what I feel. And look, there are other people up there. They're, they're feeling what they're feeling, and they're going through the pain, and they're going to work through it somehow, like an always about the end of a marriage and struggling, you know, or whatever the issue is. It's just terribly important to me to let people know that it's okay to be who they are and that they shouldn't hide. They mustn't hide because that's the pain, telling a lie feeling that you can't be who you are and feeling you have to disguise your own self from yourself, from everybody else. Those are the, those are the gateways to real pain from my point of view. So my job really in filmmaking, I felt from the very beginning, was to reflect back the truth about people's lives so they won't feel alone. That's the extra bonus, I think, about being in a Jaglum film is you don't have to pay for five years of therapy because if you're actually an actor in it, you work through so many things and you feel so great about your neuroses at the end. Uh -huh. Well, we celebrate neuroses. Yeah. We really do. Uh, that's what some people get mad at. It's called my film Self-Indulgent or the characters, you know, like they do in life, call people who talk about their own feelings too much and their need, you know. But the truth is, when we go home and go and close our door, we are full of issues about ourselves. How are we feeling? Did we, are we okay in life? Are we doing what we want to do? Are we with the person we want to be with? Are we happy? Are we not happy? And not to reflect those things because somebody else might call us self-indulgent is absurd, you know? So yes, everybody should feel better by the time we finish the films. I'm definitely not I like that. I feel better. I feel better <laughs> after being here, really. Um, I think we're going to wrap it up. And okay. I appreciate you guys uh, having me over here. I mean, this has really been an experience for me. Well, now we've got to interview you for the movie. Excellent. I, th I think I've already gone through that interview, haven't I? Not yet. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so at the end of the show, we do this thing called Film Bites, which is like a little piece of advice for anybody out there who might be making a film. Um, you can give one or not. I, I've taken to stealing them from people that ha I've just interviewed. My film bite for today is make it personal um, because I think that's one of the things about Henry Jaglom's movies is that he, they are very personal and because of that they're personal to the viewer too. That's Unless cool. somebody's not honest and then they walk away and say that guy's a narcissist or whatever. You know? Yeah. Unless they're frightened. Unless they're frightened. A lot of people are frightened of the truth. I, my only goal, my only recommendation to people would be, don't be afraid. You can do it. You can do whatever it is. You can really do it. Just don't let anybody tell you that you can't do it, because they're full of shit. Nice. Do you have one you'd like to um, contribute? Mine would be... <laughs> 
never say no, I guess. Great. Yeah. Never say no. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Don't. That's like good. It. Never say just no. Just like that. Improv. Not just say no. Never say no. <laughs> never say no. Great. Okay. Thank you for joining us here on Film Shots. And you can email us at filmshots at gmail.com if you have any comments or questions. And we'll see you Thank next you. week. Thank you. Thank you.